and welcome to the Football Beer and Punk Rock podcast. My name is Ewan and I'm joined today by Steve Choi. Steve is a multi-instrumentalist with over 25 years of experience of touring and recording in the music industry. He's best known as the guitarist in the genre-bending alternative rock band RX Bandits and uh, also in the Anthony Green-fronted supergroup The Sound of Animals Fighting. But he's had a massive career which includes playing the keys and the specials and writing and producing for Lil Peep. Steve, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. That's good. I'm glad you're doing well. It's, it's early morning for Steve, so uh, but he, he claims to have been up. <laughs> claims to have been up for a long time. He just always sounds like that. So no, speaking... I do get up early. I do get up early when I'm off tour. I'm up at six usually. So stick that in your pipe and smoke. It. <laughs> That's good because I'm, I'm certainly not. Uh, so firstly, as this is the football beer and punk rock podcast, I wanted to ask you a, a few a few questions about beer. Now I know you're more of a weed guy, but do do you drink it all anymore? Yeah, uh, I enjoy when I do drink beer. I enjoy like uh, pilsners, lagers, mm. lighter stuff. I'm not as into IPAs and the hazies and the crazy hopped stuff that is like the trend right now, especially where I live and where I'm from here in Northern California which is where this brewery called Russian River Brewery is from, which is one of the most popular beers and coveted beers in America at the moment. So, okay. uh, yeah, to answer your question, I'm a, I would say Pilsners first, lagers, and then stouts. Okay, so Russian River. I've never heard of that one, so we'll, we'll, need, to, we'll need to check that out. Don't, I don't know if yeah. they've made it over here, but it sounds cool. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you must be used to the 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 shitty beer that you've you had on you get on the riders on tour then right the cheapest beer that they can find or yeah or, yeah <laughs> is, is uh, that, that's what, what put you off beer right yeah i mean <laughs> i'm just like super health conscious and like beer for me is it was i can't drink one because then i'll just fall asleep and i get sleepy and so when i drank it was like you had to keep going and get six or seven to get pissed and then you start to feel the health effects so yeah i it wasn't something that was sustainable for me but definitely had my fair share of shitty beer whether it's at high school here in california or being given uh skulls or carlings in the uk like you know oh, when we're yeah. first getting our start so yeah i'm, I'm familiar of course carling is actual piss water so uh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Is, that is the worst uh, okay, so we'll, we'll drop the beer now. You don't need to worry about that. So we'll move on to the music side of things. You've had a phenomenal hit rate in terms of your band's achieving success. You're a classically trained musician and you, you began playing piano at the age of four and not actually picking up a guitar until you were 15. But your first uh, real band, The Blockheads, achieved relative success, opening for big bands of the time such as MU330 and Link80. What was it about that? that um, that scene that had so many good bands coming out of it and uh, where did the blockheads fit into that so the blockheads were a band started at my high school in my small town in northern california called santa rosa it's about 55 miles north of san francisco so very close to what was going on in san francisco and east bay in the 90s like gilman street especially um that was kind of like our pride of being so close to and a part of that uh it was guys that were about three or four years older than me 
and I wasn't the original drummer, but they knew I played drums in high school and eventually asked me to join. Um, so our local venue is called the Phoenix Theater in the neighboring town. And this was a place where local bands would play, but also was big enough to hold bigger shows. So, you know, I saw a lot of bands that I wasn't necessarily fan a fan of yet. Like I saw the Deftones there. I saw Sublime on their last show before Bradley died. He he died near here. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I saw Less Than Jake and Blink-182 on tour th- together there in like 96, you know, when they were like getting mm-hmm. their starts. Um, one of my favorite shows by my favorite bands, I saw Jawbreaker on Dear You Tour there at my local venue, you know, oh, wow. which still great. held like 900 people. So it was really, really cool for me. I saw Social Distortion there. So, um, so, for so us, it must have been local... a thrill to play there then when you finally got the, the chance to play at that venue. Absolutely. And we got to play there like every few months because it was when it wasn't having the four or five big shows a year, it was only going off of local shows. So it was really cool for us as a local band of kids from a small town to get to do that. And we started to get a little bit of notoriety where we would play with other bands from the Bay Area. And we even ended up playing a showcase that Lookout Records put on at a pretty well-known famous San Francisco venue called Bottom of the Hill. Uh, You should know that being a huge NoFX fan. Yeah, I've heard of that, Uh, definitely. Yeah, you know, he sings at the end of Punk and Drublick about gigging alone at the bottom of the hill, you know, Um, and that's the very one. So that was what the Blockheads was all about. That's kind of like the short rundown on it, yeah. That's cool, that's really cool. And and after the Blockheads, you were were headhunted, is that fair to say, by by Mike Park to join his new band, The Chinkies. Yeah, Yeah, that's right. You're instantly thrust into big shows uh so t- tell us a little bit about that experience of meeting mike for the first time and 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 was it drums you were playing in the chinkies as well or you'd actually did you move instrument at that point he originally wanted me to play drums but then he couldn't find a keyboard player or an organist and the parts that were in the chinkies were a little bit more advanced it wasn't really like rudimentary keyboard so he moved me over to keyboards and found another drummer um so when we first met, it was at the Phoenix Theater and the Blockheads were playing with Link 80 as well as like nine other bands because when it wasn't a big show, it was always like a fucking eight to 11 band bill, as you know, you know. Uh, a, so- he, a sore back bill, I call that one now. Yeah, yeah sore back, tired feet bill. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, he had his assistant at the label at Asian Man Records, Mia, who was also in the Chinkies, come up and introduced herself and like did this whole big wig thing of like, oh, I work for Mike Park. He really wants to meet you because he heard you. He's putting this band together of all Asians and he knows that you play a bunch of different instruments and stuff. And yeah, so we met, he told me about the band. He wanted me to play drums. Then I moved to keyboard and he goes, we have a tour already. It's with a Japanese band called Kamuri, who was quite big at the time. And we're going to go, support them in japan on this headlining tour and even when he said that i I wasn't aware of the venue size so i was like whoa my first tour like going to japan overseas this is crazy like i'm down right so um it ended up actually there was a bunch of things that happened but i i made friends with a really another band on asian man records that lived about two hours away and they became really good 
friends of mine and I moved to Santa Cruz, which was closer to where Asian man was. And it involved me kind of like leaving the blockheads and just being like, I'm not going to have time for this, you know? And yeah. So my first tour with the Chinkies was in Japan opening for this band Kamuri. And we were playing like 2000 to like 4,000 uh, person Crazy. shows, like straight away. <laughs> Crazy. And yeah. uh, Mike Park has to be probably like, I've literally never heard anyone say anything but amazing things about this guy. Like, like he just seems to be the nicest guy in punk rock, right? Yeah, he is. He's just so many, like a lot of us Korean Americans, he's a lot of dichotomies. And everything that people say about him is true. He's got really, uh, his aim is true, his heart. And his intentions and his motivations are always so often like really altruistic, just trying to be down to help people, you know. Um, there's another side of him when you're really close to him, like I am and certain people where he loves this kind of big brother, uh, well within the bounds of manageable, like love, loving bullying, you know. But uh, uh, overall, like, yeah, he's... He's really cool. And even now as an adult, like it's inspiring to me, all the things that he's really championed and that he thought was important, you know, and that he's done. Yeah. Yeah. He's definitely done some amazing things. Um, and, and with a pure DIY ethic as well, just uh, uh, seems like an amazing guy. Uh, so you mentioned there that you, you moved through to Santa Cruz uh, and I, I know you were touring in uh, Slow Gherkin around this time as well, and you'd meet your future bandmates uh, as you stayed in your house in Santa Cruz. Tell us a little bit about this house, because I remember hearing some stories from you, and it seemed like a very special place in terms of the bands that passed through it and, uh, and the stuff that went on in that house. Yeah, so this house was originally, I moved in with a couple other people for a time. The original bass player from Slow Gherkin, Zach, was living there. Um, and then there was just a couple other people that were like kind of part of that scene at the time going to shows because in the South Bay near Santa Cruz, San Jose, where Asian man was, there's a lot of shows, a lot of bands, just like a lot of shit happening. Right. And a lot of bands would come to Santa Cruz. So slow Gherkin was that band, as you, as you mentioned that I made friends with and moved down to like, I was touring with them and playing with them. And around that time, I also got into playing with the dudes from the specials. Um, and this is all when I'm 18, 19 years old still. So I'm a dumb fucking kid, not knowing much, just being like, what is happening? And at the time being like kid ghetto rich, where I'm making $200 a day in 1999. So I'm going on tour for two weeks and coming back with G's and just going like, <laughs> whoa, like, you know, and just blah, blah, blah. But, um, we started having friends and friends band stay at the house. And so, you know, um, MU330 stayed over and they were on tour with this little unknown band from Chicago called the Alkaline Trio at the time. And it was their first time to California. They had just signed with Asian Man maybe four months prior um, because of a demo that Mike had heard and he went to go see them and he signed them. And so their first time to California they stayed at our house. We bonded, you know, Dan Andriano slept. I I turned the garage, which is a separate from the house into my room. It was quite big. And he slept on my floor 
that night and they still had their original drummer glenn who was from 88 fingers louis and uh we had a couple days off so it was like me the guys from slow gherkin mu330 and alkaline trio just all hanging out we took them to their beach the first time and like it was freezing outside but these guys coming from chicago where it was like 30 degrees colder were like this is great. And it was like overcast and cold, but they're still jumping in the ocean and like going swimming. Uh, and then, uh, you know, the next time they came through, they filmed one of their first music videos for that song, Goodbye Forever in our backyard. Yeah. Um, like Glenn, it's for this like Hopeless Records video comp. And you see like Glenn, the original drummer, swinging around my lawnmower. Your, my your lawnmower, lawnmower yeah. in it. I watched yeah, it again and, today uh, to remind myself. I was like, yeah, that, that's the house. Yeah. It's funny because it's like Matt Ski was driving around in Mike's white minivan around our street, like around our block, like singing. <laughs> like When I watch it, it's just so funny because, uh, you know, especially when we get to our age, we love to pine about nostalgic times yeah. and, you know, and that shit. And so when I watch that, it gives me a lot of those feelings. But after that, a bunch of bands would come through and stay over. Like uh, the Blood Brothers came and stayed, it played in Santa Cruz, and their van broke down. They had to get it fixed. So they ended up staying at our house for like four days. And, you know, we set up a bunch of their gear in our living room. We like, we jammed, we were like jamming and stuff. And like, you know, uh, it was cool because they were like this kind of aggressive indie band. And I was this dude who wasn't necessarily super into ska, but played with a bunch of ska bands and ska dudes and stuff. And, yeah. Uh, it was cool that we just all broke down and hung out and shit like that, you know, and uh, like Bob from Braid stayed at the house and like did an acoustic set before and like, you know, there was just all kinds of stuff happening there. So, yeah. People would pay good money for that kind of thing now. You're, you're getting yeah, they do. Yeah, yeah. And if you told me then that someday people will like put on shows that people will attend in their living rooms and stuff, I'd be like, whoa, that's a crazy idea. And did you, did, was there any like, ever any ever any trouble with neighbors or uh, noise complaints or anything from all your your antics? Or? Yeah, we we had a couple parties. We had a couple parties that got out of control, like after some university shows at the university there and stuff. But I think the neighbors knew that we were just kind of dumbass kids, and most of the time we weren't too much trouble. But there was definitely a couple parties where I'm sure they called the cops. They were the ones that called the cops and stuff because we're being too noisy too late and stuff so yeah <laughs> i don't blame them i would have not been happy to live next to us yeah yeah i'm sure looking back now you're like oh my god no but yeah, yeah at the time at the time what... yeah you don't care about other people <laughs> not at yeah, 19 yeah, years totally. old <laughs> no no yeah um so just to touch on then you, you mentioned there that uh, at 19 19 year olds 20 year old you you started playing keys in the specials. How does a Korean American from North California end up playing keys in the specials? Well, <laughs> to clarify, they were going by Neville and something of the specials, like a review. But a lot of times, like a promoter booking the show wouldn't care and just would write the specials anyway, you right, know. Yeah. Um, but technically, it was that. But how it happened is, is um, as a lot of people know, Mike was got his start in a band called Skank and Pickle, and they made a 
quite a big name for themselves in the early to mid nineties. You know, they were playing a lot of big festivals, a lot of big shows. They like took sublime out on their first tour, just like that type of thing. You know, Scar was huge. Yeah. then. That's, that's the other thing. Scar was like mainstream, right? Every, like you had like, obviously like no doubt, yeah. then, but like, it's like every advert or commercial or whatever, you know, was yeah. Scar music. Scar was everywhere. Right. So they were the kind of the lead up because they were going right as a, as Scott was about to hit, right? Like they were going and they inspired the no doubts and the real big fishes and the gold fingers that really just went right and like took it. But uh, so the drummer from Skank and Pickle, Chuck, was somehow involved with Neville Staples. And Neville was kind of the uh, toasting hype man and one of the singers of the specials, right? Um, and they were looking for a keyboardist. So he asked Mike, like, you know anybody? He goes, yeah, dude, I know this kid, Steve Choi. Like, you should try him out. And this is like, everyone else in the band was like older in their mid to late 20s, like youngest. And they were all heavy hitters from like really well-established bands. Right. Like the guitarist and the trombonist were from this band, another Asian man band called Let's Go Bowling, where at the time was very well known in that scene, like a traditional, like a trad ska band. So Chuck contacted me and hit me up and I, uh, Neville from the specials was living in Santa Cruz at that time, um, with his then wife. And I went over to his house one day and I just played some organ while he sang. And he kind of like started coaching me on like how to play these different reggae styles specifically because, you know, he's Jamaican from the Midlands, you know, from Birmingham. Yeah. And so, you know, he's teaching me this terminology of like reggae and ska organ styles, like teaching me how to be quote unquote bubbly, teaching me how to like drive it or whatever, you know what I mean? And uh, I got the gig, did it for like four or five months. And so, yeah, they would call me young Steve. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, that is crazy. Good one for the CV. Uh, just put yeah. the, just put the specials. You don't need to worry about the stuff before that. Uh, I, <laughs> <laughs> I almost feel like a, a fraud though if I don't clarify. I'm not trying to be like a charlatan or anything, you know. But it was really cool for me, and who I really valued was Roddy, uh, Roddy Radiation, which mm -hmm. is the lead guitarist of the specials, and like he was such a lovely guy. I loved hanging out with him, and I loved like asking him to tell me stories and just hanging out with him, you know, smoking yeah. cigarettes and having beers with him and shit so it was super cool yeah they must have had some some great stories and and just the music as well playing those iconic parts on the keys must have been must have been a thrill for you um it was there was definitely times in different certain songs like man at cna and shit like ghost town where i was just like man this is crazy it's like this sounds sick and i'm just sitting at the back of the stage like playing my organ like just tripping out it's cool that's very cool very cool so uh, moving on to RX then, R RX started in 1996, uh, but you didn't join until 99, 2000. Uh, yes. The, the first memory I have of, of, of RX Bandits, and I'm sure it's the same for a lot of people over this side of the water, uh, was that was that album Progress, which came out on Drive Through Records. And they were, they were pushing hard into the UK market around that time. I'm sure they're probably pushing hard in the American market, but... Uh, you know, all these bands were getting pushed hard and there was a drive-through tours and stuff like that came over here. I remember attending them. I particularly remember the song Analog Boy, which uh, you're in the video for. 
but you are not mentioned on that album as being in the band at that uh, for that album. So what what is the story around that? When they were recording and writing that record, I actually recorded demos with them for that record. Um, I was involved in like collaborating on a number of songs. I think some of them didn't make the record and some of them did, but I, we hadn't talked about me joining the band yet because I appreciated what they were doing and I knew what great musicians they were, but like, it was ironic as much, as much as ska helped me in the beginning, like I was never a huge ska person. Mm-hmm. Like it was never my deal. Like literally at that time I was listening to like no knife and Arches of Loaf and Braid and Super Chunk. Like these were my favorite bands, like Fugazi, you know, like a lot of post-punk DC indie original emo, like Cap'n Jazz yeah. and American Football, Joan of Arc, Jade Tree Records. This was my shit, right? So um, I was still busy doing the Chinkies. I was playing with Slow Gherkin. I was doing session work for a Japanese punk band called Nicotine. Like I was really busy still. So at that time, they just talked to me about like, hey, will you play keyboards and do some stuff on these demos? And I did that. And so they ended up just completing the record while I was still busy doing all these other tours and stuff. Right. Um, But as it ended up, (laughs) like three months after the record came out, like they had a chat with me and were like, well, we would like to add like a second guitarist and keyboard. And like, I had another project at that time called the Trust Foundation, which was really like hum, far, refused, and like that kind of stuff influenced. Right. A little bit of helmet, like just like indie. More riffy type. Metal, hardcore riffy. Yeah, yeah. And so they were big fans of that. And they were like, Oh, you're on some shit. Like we would love to have your style in the band. And so three months after progress came out, uh, they're like, we're going on this U S tour with newfound glory. And then we're going to go to the UK with them as well. Um, and so I was like, all right, cool. I'll I'm down. I see where you guys are going. And I think I can add something and we can take this even further, you know, after progress. So I joined, we did the U S tour then the Twin Towers and uh, September 11th happened right after we played New York City on the East Coast and the rest of the tour was canceled. And so was the UK tour, which got postponed till the following year. And uh, yeah, that's how it went down. That was really cool. Yeah. So like you, you sort of mentioned there, like you weren't, uh, you weren't ever into Sky and, and RX Bandits was uh, originally sort of ska influenced heavily uh, but you've changed your sound throughout the career uh, and you've always asked questions of your audience and, and sort of pushing them into new mind spaces letting them sample new musical styles what drives this change obviously it'd be easy uh, as many bands have done in in the past that have achieved a bit of success to just uh, churn out like facsimiles of the same album over and over but uh, rx bandits seem to have, have like deliberately almost challenged their their audience to go no we're not this now we're this and you can come with us or just listen yeah. to that last album so what, what what sort of drives that change 
honestly the the types of bands that they were we were all into you know what i mean so it starts with bands like the clash who were a punk band one time they were a pop band another time they were uh part ska band another time you know um so it starts with bands like them and like subhumans and citizen fish that had this spectrum of like being punk and doing ska or like, you know, having all these different things. And they were widely accepted as being punk bands, you know? Mm. And then you carry that over into one of everyone in RX's favorite bands, Bad Brains, which is, to me, one of the greatest hardcore, original hardcore punk bands of all time, period, ever. What people didn't appreciate was not only were they black, but yo, they were making the most blistering punk songs, shredding, and then they would have straight dub reggae songs on the same record. And so yeah. we were like, you don't have to be one dimensional, you know? Mm. And then, you know, we, we all love DC punk, especially discord. Like we grew up on minor threat, we grew up on, you know, the bands that came later. And so Fugazi is a huge influence for RX because they did the same thing in their own way. You know, like they were like, fuck a style we're going to make our music. And so we really like, honestly, it's those bands and those types of bands that were like our biggest inspiration that said, why can't we try to do the same thing? We're never going to be like that great, but as them, but like we can like go down the same path. And like, yeah. that was our deal, bro. Yeah. Straight up. I think that, I think that was really cool. And I, I, I love that, you know, you're not just, you didn't just go, Oh, progress is hitting. Uh, we'll ride this drive through wave and and like sort of try and write you know popular songs and whatever yeah and, and uh so it's really it's a bold decision and uh, i think it's really really cool that you did that uh tell me why april the 30th 2006 was the highlight of your career april 30th 2006 i'm not i'm drawing a blank on what that date might be because that would have been right after we finished recording and the battle begun, but it hadn't come out yet. Uh, uh, were uh, we uh, on tour? You were on tour. You were playing our broth. Oh, that was then. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah that was how um... does a band from from California end up in our broth? You know, we also played Aberdeen on that tour. <laughs> so yeah. we were going. That, that's that, that's like, B markets, right? <laughs> we had four Scotland shows. We played Glasgow, Edinburgh, Arbroath, and Aberdeen, I believe, on that very tour. Um, and what was that hotel called? Uh, the Viewfield Hotel. The Viewfield Hotel, uh, right. And if I remember correctly, it was uh, on the water or near the water, wasn't it? Uh, I don't think so, but you would have went down to the water because there's literally nothing else to see in our broth. Uh, but uh, okay, so it, it was a bit of a walk. It's, from it's, there. Yeah, it's a bit farther up. Yeah, the, there's a, a, another uh, hotel that does gigs called the Cliffburn, which is on the water, but uh, the view field wasn't on the water. It's now it's now been knocked down. It's now flat. Oh, but... Okay. Yeah, but I remember them there being like a bar, restaurant, lounge, or something mm. in the hotel. It was yeah. small, maybe 150 cap, if that. That that's huge for like, our growth, mate. 
Yeah, well, it, the show was packed. It was an awesome show. We had a great time. It was sick. And like, and a bunch of people that came to see us stayed in the hotel where we were staying too. Uh, but yeah, that night we had gotten some this like powdered Molly, this powdered E MDMA that was going around the UK at that time. That was super popular, and we all took a bunch of it before we played. And uh, <laughs> it was a fun show. Yeah, yeah it was so hot. It was so hot and sweaty in there. Yeah. I remember it. I remember a lot about that night. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's cool. I, I, I'm. Uh, it's definitely unique to have played our both, and I think I think that's very cool that you did it. Uh, yeah, one of my favorite things about touring, especially in other countries, is we've done we had done so much UK touring in that decade that we played so many small towns up and down the UK. I mean ridiculous places now that even when i talk to people from england or scotland or wales they're like you played there really and i'm like yeah like we played there yeah so cool so cool so why has there not been another album since uh, 2014's gemini her majesty what's what's going on you are still very active on the touring front um or fairly active anyway um yeah you know that's a good question, to be honest. We took a long while off. We were dealing back then after Gemini came out with a lot of inter-band, interpersonal issues, some revolving around addiction, some not, just some just personal like tension between members that had boiled up. And we had always been a band that um, kind of what you were speaking to about us really making a point of not kind of churning out the same record we had a slower turnaround rate than a lot of bands like bands that are on the high efficiency end can do like a record a year every year or two but it took us like a year of touring a year of writing and chilling and then recording to like get an album together so after gemini came out in 2014 we were on the verge of breaking up again and like there was just a lot of stuff going on it was really chaotic and we managed to get together to you know do a couple tours we did like another uk run where we co-headlined with circus survive like we shared a bus and like we did this kind of stuff and uh we did like some anniversary album tours in the u.s but we had such a hard time even getting those things together that by I would say 2016, after we did one more U.S. tour, we were like, okay, we need to like give this a rest and reassess this. And so three or four years went by where we were inactive. We weren't doing anything. And we sort of worked everything out between the members that needed to. And we got back together and uh, we were going to do a whole new campaign. And uh, we played one big headlining show at Orange County House of Blues in January. January 22nd of the year 2020 and then we all know what happened after yeah, that yeah. which we're all fucking sick of hearing or talking yeah. about so I won't even go into it but we probably don't need to go uh, into that but yeah so yeah. yeah and then so here we are now we've been working on our new album we're uh back with Sergeant House and yeah we're we're trying to make it happen so that's the long and short of why it's been so long yeah that's 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 fair enough understandable uh so uh, away from rx you play in a chaotic progressive hardcore band alongside uh vinnie caruana 
of the movie life. I am the Avalanche. Uh, it's called Peaced Out. Uh, and I would like a public apology from you. As the song Castlemania is my wife's alarm tone. And she loves that snooze button. So every morning I get that blasted at me like six to seven to ten times every morning. Still, really? Still. I'm sorry, bro. Uh, yeah, you're right. I do owe you an <laughs> apology. Yeah. I'm sorry. That's too much. From the top, she's playing it as her alarm? Yeah. It comes in with that, the sort of noises and the... Yeah. <laughs> but you must be so sick of it by now. <laughs> you must be so sick of it. I don't blame you, bro. I'm sorry. But at the same time, like, she's got to take some responsibility. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair, fair, fair. Are there any any more plans for any more pieced out stuff, or is it everyone's diary too full to, for for that project? Yeah, it seems as though uh, Roger, the bass player, who's like one of my best friends and my collaborator, like he did all the producing and engineering of pieced out stuff with me. He's been really busy. He just had a kid last year, so uh, there are no plans to do anything with that at the moment doesn't look like we're going to have any anytime soon but you never know you know um a lot of these projects are lifelong things and sometimes they happen again quicker than we expect and sometimes they never get going again so uh you know it's just it is what it is and i hope we do something again because that project is super fun for me yeah i like it that that Um, aligns to what you were saying earlier about your um your influences and, and the things that you love from from back in the day uh you're definitely yeah you're definitely wearing your influences on your sleeve with your own spin of of your own sort of style of guitar playing which is i think is very unique cheers i appreciate that bro honestly that's the best compliment i can receive i don't even care if people think i'm good or not or they like what i do or not if they think they can say to me like you have a unique sound and yeah. stamp and identity like i'm my cup is filled, you know. Yeah, I, I, I can, I, I can definitely recognize a Steve Choi guitar line. You know what I mean? It's like one, of, one <laughs> of them. You've got a sig- signature type of sound, like a type of way of playing, type of the notes you choose. I, I don't, I can't explain it because I'm not a good enough guitarist to know what I'm talking about, uh, in terms of what you're playing, which annoys me because you didn't start playing until you were 15, and I started when I was 11. <laughs> well, in fairness, I started when I was like 11 or 12, but I didn't take it seriously. I didn't uh, own like a guitar. Yeah. Okay. So thanks for making me feel better. That's, that's good. To <laughs> well, in fairness though, you have a whole separate career and have done a bunch of other things where I've only devoted my life to this. So, you know, I'm sure that you would be just as good, if not better, had you devoted as much time, had you been able to. Okay. I'm, I'm going to take that. I'm going to take that for the one. Yeah. <laughs> so t- yeah, honestly, me- dude, I just real quick, I I just often say that talent is actually 90% like unbridled passion. You know, it's just like that person's passion to like, be obsessed and think about it and practice when nobody's looking and stuff. And they're like, Oh, they're so good. It's like a lot of times you don't realize it's like, it's because we're obsessed and just do it like 18 hours of the day, you know? Yeah. And so that talent, quote unquote, is just like this fervent passion for it, you know? in any discipline, whether it's athletics or music or arts or whatever, you know? So. Yeah, absolutely. That's, I think it, it takes maybe a certain personality type to, to be like that and to, to have that, um, that drive to only focus on one, on, on one thing and, or to be, to become so obsessed with that one thing and not, you know, spread yourself too thin. 
I agree with you completely. And I want to say that that exact thing that you said to me is where my blessing is. I'm blessed to be that like obsessed with something, you know, and to me, that makes up a lot more of talent than people realize. I can completely understand that. Definitely. Uh, so speaking about obs obsession, uh, tell me about the sounds of animals fighting. Uh, it is quote unquote, a super group with rolling membership, in including Anthony Green from Circus of Ives, Jason, uh, et cetera. And you're not long back from a tour and those shows looked great. It was like pop, proper popping off. Uh, like it seems like they, yeah. that, that band has uh, an obsessive fan group around it. Yeah, we're really lucky to like have been doing it for almost 20 years now and to play every four or five years and to be able to go out on tour and play six shows. It's straight up a blessing, man. Like... You know, it's sick. It blows our mind. Like, I can't believe that. Uh, what do we do to deserve it? But it's super fun because it's a large group. There's eight of us in this band, you know? It's the size of a fucking ska band, you know, <laughs> when we're not. Uh, so when we get to hang out, it's like this summer camp vibe where you're not in this regular thing with these people you're always touring with. So it's not like, oh, whatever, everybody goes off and does their own thing. It's like we travel together. We fly together, we're in the tour bus together, and we're always hanging out and having a good time. And over these last however many years we've been doing it, we've all became really good friends, and we just love hanging out with each other uh, at the few times that we do get to be around each other. So aside from the stick-ass shows, um, it's just a double blessing because the shows are awesome, the fan and the band culture is awesome, but... We just have a, such a good time even rehearsing together, traveling together, suffering together, you know? So it's just like awesome all around. It's the old uh, eight people isn't a band, it's a gang. Yeah, yeah. And with our crew, you know, and everybody that goes on the road with us, it's just so much that it's just a big, big old group, you know? Mm -hmm. that's, that's really cool. Uh, as I say, like everyone should should definitely check out that project, watch the go on Instagram, watch the sort of clips of the live shows. They look insane. Uh, it really was so well received your last tour. Um, yeah, so lucky. And uh, Hate 5-6, Sonny, who does the Hate 5-6 channel, yeah. uh, just released our show from Philly that he taped and edited. So I haven't checked that out yet, but I'll probably at least watch a song or two, but I don't think I'll watch the whole thing. Yeah, <laughs> uh, well, yeah. It's, you, you never you never like watching back yourself and see see your stupid guitar faces. No, especially since he was on my side of the stage too. So like I'm always like coming in and out of the shot. I'm like, no thanks. I don't need that. <laughs> I'll 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 definitely check that out. Um you've been doing some producing and writing. Uh you you wrote a couple of singles of Lil Peep singles. Uh, how did you get into the world of SoundCloud rap? Uh because that stuff does like serious numbers on the streaming platform. Uh, um, yeah, Lil Peep, Gus, rest in peace. Um, he was managed at the time by a good friend of mine named Chase. Chase used to work at Sergeant House. And um, he worked with Peace Out in the beginning when we were getting started. Uh, since then, he, you know, at different times managed everything from Lil Peep 
to like giant Instagram comedy accounts like Foo's Gone Wild, you know, and stuff like that. Right. Uh, he manages that band Prayers, and he was managing Gus, Little Peep at the time, and Gus's thing at that time of SoundCloud rap, like uh, in the mid aughts, you know, about eight years ago, or sorry, the mid teens, like 2014, yeah, yeah. 15, 16. Um, he was really into a, like a lot of like uh, the 2000s emo. So the second wave of emo, right? So he, he really liked a lot of, you know, like early under oath, like not the metal shit and like taking back Sunday, you know, this kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah. His, his beat maker, uh, Smoke Sack, was also into that. And they wanted to link up with guitarists that could just like put out or somebody who played guitar and keyboards who could like help them kind of like pinpoint that style. So Chase approached me and had me do a couple writing sessions with them, like getting in the studio with them and, you know, like typical hip hop sessions, you get in there, you chat for a while, you get super high. You're just like smoking the whole time and you just start playing. Like he would play some beats and then I'd be like, Oh, I like this one. And I'd start playing like some parts over it and stuff. And you do however many bits you do. And then, uh, you know, Gus, Lil Peep decides which one he's like feeling and he wants to like do some shit over. And so that's kind of like the long and short of how that came together. That's really cool. Like a, a sort of, again, like pushing those musical uh, boundaries and not, not pigeonholing yourself into that. Uh, I think that's really cool. Uh, and yeah, yeah, as you say, rest in peace. Uh, I think he, he came came in with a bang, right? He, he got so popular so quickly, and uh, obviously that never really bodes well for people. But uh, yeah, sad thing. Yeah, you know, um, abuse of pharmaceuticals have taken so many people at this point. So his was another tale of just two things, which is going down uh, a not great path, a little too fast and the corrupt medical pharmaceutical industry in america you know, yeah so oh let's let's not get into that yeah uh, fair it is so just stepping away from your career uh just now and just want some uh i always find you a fascinating person to speak with steve um and uh i just have some general questions about music uh that, sure. I, that i'd like your opinions on so what are your opinions on sort of rewriting old lyrics so lyrics that have been written 20 years ago and that now that society's changed a lot they are now you know deemed questionable so things like you you've got uh daryl from glassjaw who's got that song where it's like slut and whore said about a hundred times and he's like well i'm not changing it that's you know it was it is what it is it's a capture of time uh whereas you on you know on the flip side you've got like Haley from paramore who's like um you know, she stopped playing one of their most popular songs because it had uh, a slur in it as well. It's like slut or something in it. Uh, you know, what's your what's your opinion on that? Do you think um, you should just leave it, or should should you readdress it, or up to the individual? I think that regardless of what my opinion is, at the end of the day, it it just fact of the matter is up to the individual. Um, I think that and an individual's criteria for whether or not they should or want to change will definitely be in part based on the size of their reach. You know, 
period, like Daryl doesn't have as much incentive or as much to lose as someone like Haley from Paramore by that, not only because of the size of Paramore, but just the demographic of their audience, you know? So it makes sense to me. Um, now, whether or not anyone should or shouldn't, I just am too stuck in like nuanced subjective thinking to like make a blanket blanket statement as far as like, this is good or this is bad because yeah. it's like, it's way too subjective, you know? So I will say that, yo, Paramore is a huge band. They have fans ranging from adults to kids, from women, members of the LGBTQ community to straight ass conservative people. Like they just have everyone, right? And well, we got a huge I know Christian that, following, of course, because. And a huge Christian and, uh... following too. But I know that that said, I do really commend her. Uh, social responsibility and like sticking up for what she believes is right, even knowing that they have a huge Christian conservative following. Like it's clear that she's like, well, I, I don't give a fuck about losing that because I care about what's right, you know? Yeah. And so when she's not going to play a song that can be deemed offensive or not helpful to a certain cause that's important that she's part of and that needs to be pushed, like that makes sense to me. It also makes sense to me if someone like Daryl's like, yeah, I was a young, angry kid. Maybe I was more misogynistic then. Yeah. It doesn't mean I am now. I I see the point of being like, it's just pandering in a disingenuous way to change lyrics of a song from the past. Like it should too. be more about what I'm doing now, what I represent now moving forward, what I'm currently doing. If I'm still singing songs with whore and slut in like a misogynistic or chauvinistic context, that would be one thing, you know? But as I know him as a person, he's not like that at all. He's a fucking sweetheart. Yeah. Truly, like, would be bummed on, like, hurting anyone's feelings or, like, bumming anyone out. That's just, like, not who he is, you know? So um, I think that if somebody did rewrite songs from their past, especially 20, 20 years ago, 23 years ago, yeah. like, what? Like, everything you need to know about silence is, like... Uh, it would appear to me, and I could be wrong, but that they're just kind of being led around by their audience and being told what to do um, if they weren't doing it on their own volition already. And so, I mean, what you asked is a, is a very interesting and good question. I think that it's ultimately requires a response and deserves an answer that I think maybe like my little stoner brain isn't really <laughs> worthy of giving. Yeah. So I will it, just it's, say it's, that much. It's very uh, nuanced in uh, the, uh, the arguments for and against. Uh, I, I tend to agree that, um, you know, pandering for the sake of, of, of pandering sake to, to appear to look good isn't actually being good. It's just appearing to look good. And, and as you say, like the, the actions that you have every day, and how you act and how you are as a person uh, is better than you know changing lyrics that you wrote twenty years ago. Uh, but then, yeah. and then, and there's there's the third reason to change lyrics, uh, and that's uh, like Adam Lazara from Taking Back Sunday just cringes because he he wrote the lyrics when he's fifteen. And he's like, well, these are too cringy to sing now as as a grown man, so I'll just change them, and that's fair. Uh, yeah, that is fair. Um, there's just this thing with corporate capitalism where they keep doing marketing but now they're dressing it up as activism. 
And people like me are always trying to tell people like, because people are swayed by it. They're like, oh, like, look, Starbucks has a rainbow flag and all this shit. And it's just like, listen, like I support all these causes. Like I'm what's considered like total, like left-wing liberal, like progressive, you know, but don't be fooled. Like these corporations, like they don't do activism. They do marketing yeah. and they're going to go towards whatever cause is most profitable for them. Now, how this pertains to bands is if somebody doesn't care about speaking out and like caring in their daily life and what they're doing currently artistically to like further a cause and help it. And they're just like kind of being criticized. And so they change lyrics and go, Hey, look, we did this. To me, that feels like the same sort of marketing disguised as activism that corporations do. And I really don't fuck with that at all. Hmm. Oh, absolutely. I can, I can definitely see that, that parallel. Um, so moving on next question, you're a classically trained musician. As I said, you've been playing piano since you're four. Uh, so presumably your parents got you into that. Tell me about your love for the power chord and were they disappointed when you stopped playing, uh, playing <laughs> classical music and started playing Green Day? No, they weren't disappointed. Um, I played cello and piano and I was involved in jazz bands and orchestras and um, symphonies well into my teens years while I was still playing in my first punk bands and going to shows. Um, that said, I love power chords because, you know, getting into punk, playing Green Day, playing Rancid, um, playing Descendants, Bad Religion, like all my earliest favorite punk bands, mm -hmm. is how I went from thinking that I can only play other people's music in classical and jazz and interpret it to going, wait, so you're telling me that with this one chord, I can put it in any combination I want and just make my own song. And it fucking blew my mind when I realized that. And I'm like, these people with no musical training at all are being taught a power chord and a couple other chords and just going, I'm just going to toss them together like this. It's the equivalent of somebody who's never been trained as a chef being given like simple four or five ingredients, rice, some veg or whatever, and throwing together meals that people love. Like, mm. and people are like, this is great food, you know? And like, as somebody like me who is so trained, I was just like, God damn. Like at first I took it as like, my whole training is a sham, dude. This is bullshit. Like I'm not going to just <laughs> play other. Later on, I realized that it has its value too. And so that started my love for the power chord. The power chord is powerful in its tone. But it's also powerful in the construct of how many genres. I mean, you're talking metal, new metal, classic rock, rock, blues, garage rock, fucking everything, dude. Mm -hmm. Anything that involves guitar, there's a use for a power chord, you know? And um, so, you know, you fast forward 25, 26 years of playing guitar and, you know, uh, a lot of my music has been complex and intricate and kind of like shreddy or whatever, noodly. And a lot of single notes, a lot of different technical aspects on the guitar. Um, but, you know, you come back to a power chord and it's like still such a great test for a tone for an amp when you're setting an amp. Mm -hmm. um, it's one of the best ways. Uh, I won't get into like too much of the musical theory about it, but 
just the numeric values of the harmonics of the notes, this one five or one five eight, it creates so many overtones and different harmonics within distortion that um, it's why it can create such full walls of sound. There's whole genres of music that wouldn't fucking exist without power chord, you know, like you just can't, you can't have any heavy music without power chords. Yeah. You can't have punk, like you can't have anything. And so even now after playing so many, having such a single note and fast moving note um, style of guitar playing often, uh, whenever I still play a power chord and you just like let it ring out or whether you see like a hardcore band setting up on stage and the guitar players doing the same jazz while they're getting it. It's like, everybody's heard that and it's ubiquitous, you know? But in that, I just continually see its power and value and I fucking love it, dude. Your face has let up at the talk of power chords. You definitely, yeah, do, it's you like, definitely it, do love them. It's it's like there's those things in everything. In skateboarding, it's like pop shovets or 180s or just slapping a curb. There are these simple constructs that you can go way beyond. But to continue to go back to those basics, it just feels good and it's fun. And I still do those when I skate. Or, you know, just like a really nice, simple clean forward rolled pass on the pitch like playing footy that doesn't leave the ground at all that's just this clean like this kind of stuff like i live for that shit man i love it great great so as, as someone who's achieved success back when bands or labels at least could could make money from cd sales and you've also thrived in this the, the sort of streaming world where do you see the future of music uh, it seems that bands are getting squeezed so hard with like the petrol prices and all these merch splits and stuff like you're seeing come out on Twitter that are absolutely obscene. Uh, the venues like stealing from the bands essentially. Yeah. How how does the industry carry on? Uh, and is it right for Spotify etc. to dictate how music should be made, released, consumed, singles to please the algorithm etc. You know, like you, oh, you don't release an album, you need to release it single by single by single because that's what the algorithm wants. You know. Yeah. How, why are we letting this thing dictate how music is consumed? Because we don't have a choice. Yeah, I mean, sense. you're right. I, I, we, we know that that's the overarching theme, right? Um, without kind of being too pedantic about it and sounding broken recordy, like we all know that this corporate capitalist model carries the most power in the world today, and so they're able to impose their agenda. You know. Um, I personally think that with what investments Daniel Elk, the CEO of Spotify has made and their actual technology and their algorithmic technology that they have in Spotify, I think that we have a great chance of seeing them become a defense company in the next decade or two. And we don't even realize it, especially with the investments he's made in sort of defense companies and shit. Yeah, you know? I heard like, he was big into arms uh investment huge he's making huge investments into like yeah ai powered uh defense systems and also like missile and drone systems and shit and it's not a very uh squiggly or long line from how spotify is now with streaming and the analytics and shit and how they can just parlay that into fucking massive social control 
But anyway, uh, yeah, the, the the analytics. Yeah, like, I was just about to bring that up. Like, they they're definitely like a data company now in terms of like you see like your split if totally. uh, if you ever look at like you know your artist split. Here's who listens to you, male, female, all the different age ranges, etc., locations. Right. You know, huge yes. huge amounts of data that uh, I assume they're going to use for nefarious reasons, not for good. There is no company who has the uh, potential to create the data, like all the social networking platforms and streaming platforms that won't use it for nefarious reasons. They've just shown that over and over and over and over, right? Period, like period. I'm surprised Apple hasn't done it more. I'm surprised they've even seemed to like be able to maintain any sort of appearance of like ethics about it, you know? which could all be a lie. I don't really, at the end of the day, we're all in the dark, bro. Like we don't mm. know, you know? So, so, but as far as the, can you see a future from music then? Cause I, even here, like uh, right now, like the, the, the government just the other day came out saying, Oh, we're going to uh, clamp down on useless degrees. So they're good. Obviously the arts are going to, are going to be useless uh, because that's not a, a job for, you know? It's, uh, yeah. I think, um, Government has a habit habit of being really stupid, and when I hear things like that, yeah. I kind of chuckle to myself because I'm like, "You want to surely solidify people's passion for that and spark a whole new underground movement? Do exactly that, dude! Like, literally obliterate fine arts degrees and all that stuff. There is no way to ensure its survival better on an yeah. underground level, you know." Um, so that ties into where I think, you know, the music industry is probably going to go, which is just conjecture conjecture on my part, but we see it going that direction already. As you said, financially, it's become not just a little bit, it's become exponentially less viable for bands. Even bands at our medium level feel it enormously, dude. Like we've had to really change the logistics of how we travel and tour to kind of compensate with the amount of this fake term that people like to throw around called inflation, that's really not inflation. It's literally corporate, greed. it's abject greed. Yeah. Um, so I think that, you know, the more everything starts to cater towards what the algorithms and streaming platforms require, uh, the more a response in the underground we're gonna see, and we're seeing it already. Why is hardcore getting so big again? Why are underground shows, outdoor shows, house shows, this whole DIY movement, why is it seeing the biggest resurgence we've seen that I've seen since the 90s? And to me, it's in response to all this because yeah. uh, it's part of nature. It's part of sociology, human nature. And there's always going to be a response, you know, and this is that response. So I think that we may see fewer bands. We may see fewer people making a living uh, being musicians, but I think that as electronic music, AI-driven music, streaming music, this new genre of hip-hop, which is essentially just pop, is coming up, and the mainstream may not need live music, drum-based, guitar-based music as much, but there's always going to be people that need that visceral experience and yeah. that exchange, and that's never going to go away. I just think that we may be entering a time where it gets pushed underground a bit more, where you're not going to see as many rock bands and arenas and stuff 
like the Foo Fighters and the Queens of the Stone Ages will grow old and there won't be as many people to take their place. Oh, well, there, there's, you know? al- there's already no one. If you actually think about right. who are who are the yeah. next, who are the, the, the there's a there's a podcast uh, here called the Unsung Podcast. Uh, it's very good, worth checking out. Uh, but they were they were discussing festivals and they were saying, well, who is the next headliners of these festivals? Who are the next headliners of these festivals? Because there is actually there's no not. one. Everyone, there's no one. Yeah, there's 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 literally no one who's got that those you know like five six great albums or that they can pick songs from. There's no one. You're right. And all the bands that would be in line to that, I see a cap on, you know, like I see them like, and I could be wrong. They, I don't know shit, right? I'm just saying what I see. So the bands 15, 20 years ago, like bands like Idols, where they're at, like 15, 20 years ago, they would have been like, oh, if they just keep going, like they're going to get to this trajectory and get to this level, you know, mm-hmm. but I just don't see that for this current wave of bands. The The only one I can think of which came as a shock to a lot of us because we've been following them and listening to them for so long is someone like Turnstile, which is yeah. like surpassed all of our expectations. And I'm, I'm so happy for them. They're fucking like an awesome band and they do awesome things and they've been going at it for a long time. You know, like I, I can, dues. I can see them having the, 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 the response. So I can see them like doing their in neutral. I, I can, th- I think they'll maybe go like harder on their next album and just go like not like, challenge all the listeners. Oh, you like that because it's probably i think it's going to be the, uh, their hardest album next but i could be wrong they might just you know go all in for it yeah but you're already seeing them playing small arenas in places like even in america and mexico like latin america especially some of these headlining shows they're playing are like this is fucking big this yeah, is not playing, just like big, big arenas hard. here they're playing they're yeah. playing the biggest spaces here yeah and so you know, I think that that's an organic thing that comes up and we could see little things like that. There's other bands that are like whatever, like Spirit Box or whatever, that are doing really well and like surpassing a lot of people's expectations. But I also think that there's still that corporate industry response and they're propping up bullshit like Greta Van Fleet and like these kind of bands because they are trying to still maintain their place yeah. in creating what's going to be big. And there's like shoving it down people's throats and it's like so obvious, you know? So, I mean, that's kind of just the general, my general view of that. But, you know, that's a very big question. And again, I wonder if my little view and my little pea-sized brain, I think it's just too big for that, you know? Well, it's it's good to hear your your point of view on it. Uh, Have you got anything, anything else musically? Yeah, uh, you want to talk about it's coming out. Uh, I, I'd heard you were going to do a solo project, but that seems to have not materialized. Still, I'm still working on it. Um, I'm is, still is working that on under that. Under J Moon moniker, still, or yes, it's under J Moon. It's a totally different genre. It's like kind of like pop, hip hop, R and B type shit. Um, I have a new band in the works called Hard Chiller right now. Um, with Casey from Peaced Out and uh, a gentleman named Joe Van, who was in a band called From Indian Lakes. Oh, yeah. So, like yeah. yeah, we're getting a bunch of songs together. I'm super stoked on it. And it's what I've been spending most of my summer working on. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I really like that From Indian uh, Lakes record. Is it blank tape, is it? Yeah, dude. He's, yeah, yeah. he's a great songwriter, Joe. Yeah. 
you're also a podcaster yourself, so tell our listeners uh, what your podcast is about and where to find you. So my podcast is called The Musicians Guild. You can find it on any podcast platform, everywhere, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, blah, blah, blah. You can just Google it, whatever. It's obviously a music-based show, but it's really music-centric, geared towards musicians and people who are really into music. So I'm having not just musicians, but people who are front house engineers or producers or everybody around music. And we're not doing that thing where we're like trying to talk about crazy stories on the road and like this typical bullshit, but rather have a conversation like real musicians and industry people have together and kind of just like give people that fly on the wall voyeuristic experience because we're getting into like the nuances of relating to each other and finding out, you know, rather than being like, how did you get your start in music? We're kind of talking like how we do when no one's listening, which is, oh, what do you like in this city? Like, what, what's your favorite thing? Yeah. You know, what do you like to do after the show? Like, do you drink beer? Or do you go straight for the shower? Like, you know, do you need to poop before you go on stage? Like, <laughs> what's your deal? Like, so it's kind of like, this is what it's about, you know? I, 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 I truly do love it uh, i've said that to you before um i think i, I love the the minute minutiae you go into and the gear talk the, the episodes i feel like well well yep is a good place to start he's a super producer produced so many great uh stuff uh aaron nagel uh who's he he did the art for one of rx is two of them two yeah. of them yeah uh he's a fantastic artist his episode's great as well and he was in link 8 as well uh yeah just so many great episodes definitely check out uh, the musicians guild podcast um it's it you, you thank you it. i'm so, honored bro thank you so much <laughs> uh i'm just i'm conscious of your time so we'll just uh move on to football quickly uh and just uh i got some time we don't need to rush too much well you're you're away to play football uh yeah so just so <laughs> the listeners know so steve is a, is a massive football fan uh you know because he's american and calls it football uh, you might have heard a, a few <laughs> a few references earlier to to how well Steve knows the UK. Uh, you, you lived in London for a while, right? Yeah, for a little yeah. bit. Yeah. yeah, and and like you, you know, you heard him say "pissed" and the words "carling." You know, so you know, you know, he's he knows his best. So. <laughs> uh, but when did you first get into football? Uh, I think I got into football around two thousand four or five like in the midst of us really touring the UK heavily. And that was obviously instrumental in that. Yeah. And, and tell the listeners what team you support. <laughs> I started out supporting Chelsea. Yeah. But now to be honest, I kind of consider myself uh, a fan of the game and I'm not like devout about club support because, and I'll, I can go into this whole thing, but I won't, but for me, like a lot of families in the UK and stuff, it, there's no heritage in my family. There's no memories, childhood memories of going to the grounds, my father, and all these things that I understand why that level of club support happens there. And when I see Americans just try to replicate that out of the box, just add water, it's cringy as fuck. You know what I mean? Where I'm like, dude, you're going to bleed for Man City? Really? <laughs> like, seriously? You're from Jersey. Like, you know? When somebody says that their great-grandfather was going to see them and they stuck with them through all the bad years and shit, it's like, okay, that makes sense. But yeah. American fans that are just trying to 
co-opt that culture and that level of involvement it's just like that's fake as fuck well the same thing happens here though in reverse like we uh, like my band all has a a hockey team that we quote-unquote support and i only (laughs) i I only support my team because they're the same colors as dundee united you know so uh, you know but like yeah we're we're into it in certain levels you know some guys watch every match but you know and call you call the team we and everything but you know obviously never been to a game stuff like that but I think well, that that's fair. Everywhere. Yeah, and that's very um, diplomatic of you to compare that, but dude, it's not the same because, like, football is one of the oldest running professional sports on earth, you know? Mm-hmm. Whereas, like, the NHL is, like, if barely even half that age, you know what I yeah. mean? Like, yeah. if it is so. Um, I just think that it doesn't put it more important. It just has a level of involvement from humans and part of these people's stories that other sports just don't have and can't have yet but getting there you know so i, I noticed you, you you've you've uh conspicuously stopped supporting chelsea right is right at the time they turned to shit so uh how do you think no, i'm do not saying after, i don't support them. how do you think they'll do no. after a disaster season they've had the last season do you think they're gonna bounce back or do you think they're they're a fallen star well, first of all, I'd like to say I also I follow Chelsea. I also follow Nottingham Forest. I also follow Roma. So I follow a lot of clubs, you know. And um, right now, Chelsea is obviously getting American owners super hard. We've watched American owners come in and fuck up a lot of huge clubs in the Premier yeah. League. <laughs> we watched it happen with Arsenal. We watched it happen with Man U. Now we're watching it happen with Chelsea. He's wasting ridiculous money, triggering stupid buyout clauses uh, to inflate a squad that's already too big, that can't get any sort of rhythm or regularity. And over this summer transfer window, you're seeing a lot of like just trying to stop the bleeding and try and find like a new identity. So I think that if Chelsea remains, (laughs) to be honest, in like the top six or seven this next season, it'll probably be pretty good. And I wouldn't expect any more than that, to be honest, especially with someone like Pochettino coming in and having to like change so much just to even get it close to his setup. You know? Yeah. I think like uh, teams like Aston Villa under Uni Emery, is, I think he's a great manager. Arsenal should have never have got rid of him. That was an insane decision. And I think he's going to do really well next season. Newcastle will be big spending. So they're going to be up there, you know, so the competition is, is right because of all these like, you know, state-owned clubs now. You know, they've just got so much money to burn. No, Newcastle's going to be like winning every title in another three seasons, I think, mm-hmm. because of the whole Saudi money behind it. But yeah, it's all about those managers like Eddie Howe at Newcastle or Unai Emery at Aston Villa that are taking over like really solid clubs with really like great histories. You know, mm-hmm. and um they're like squads like Aston Villa are like not far away from kicking a lot of ass. You know, they have a lot of good parts. Like, you know, they just need to fill in certain gaps, you know, but. And and obviously about keeping your best players after, after a good season, uh, you know, it's it's always the, the, the bigger fish come, come hunting. Yeah. They need to keep Tyrone Mings. They need to keep, you know, these pieces. Otherwise they're absolutely dust. They're going to get like Bournemouth, you know? Yeah. So. So yeah. uh, you mentioned you 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 um you focus more heavily on international stuff. Uh, 
Korea or America? Who 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 are you supporting? Korea, South Korea, one thousand percent. I knew yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, World Cup. How did you how do you think they got on? South Korea? Yeah. I think we got on all right for the kind of squad that we have, you know. Mm. Um we're again like a lot of these mid to lower table teams in the Premier League where we have amazing players, but do we have the depth? Do we have the even distribution? Do we have enough good players to like implement a real system of play? No. You know yeah. what I mean? Not yet. Yeah. It's, um, the, same, it's um, the same as like traditionally the African teams have been. You'd have like one or two star totally. players and then like, you know, so like Didier Drogba was playing with a guy who played for Hibs, you know, in Scotland, you know, stuff yeah. like that. It's like the disparity, yeah. the disparity is crazy. Exactly. And that's what America, the US suffers from too. I would say even Korea might have a little bit of a leg up on the U.S. in that because we have more players going to Italy, Spain, and Germany, especially Germany really fucks with Korean players. You yeah, know? yeah. And they have a history of big German clubs taking chance on signing Korean players, you know, whether it's Huang Hee Chan at Wolves, you know, or, you know, a lot of these lesser known Korean names that are still stars in Korea because they made it to the Premier League, you I'm know, saying, which yeah. is like, yeah. Um, so I think Korea did all right. I think that we can't rely on Son Heung-min as being like the savior because by the time Korea is really finding a new identity and getting better players, he's going to be at the end of his career. Yeah. 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 But hopefully I like, do think he'll it'll be influential in the next crop of players how, you know, how successful he's been. He's going to He is. Yeah, and that's what you need. That's why America needs like a one big famous American so that all these kids that would play baseball or American football would be like, oh, no, I want to play what's called here soccer or whatever. Yeah. And the same thing's happening in Korea. And so it's just cool to see, though. It's nice to know that we have one of the best defenders in the world, you know, yeah. um, who looks like he's going to Bayern Munich after he finishes his military service from Napoli. but. Like having those kind of pieces is super crucial though. You know what I mean? Because that's something that Korea has always lacked. South Korea always had super small defenders, really overpowered. And they don't have the explosiveness. We don't have fullbacks on the right or left that have the explosiveness and that style of play to compete with a lot of these Brazilian wingbacks and, and you know, like that style of play, like the Spanish wingbacks and stuff. And so yeah. now we're getting closer to competing. But one thing that Korea always has that we show a lot stronger than a lot of teams is unity and honor when we play like we don't dive we don't pick fights we don't make a meal out of shit we're not doing games and shit and playing the refs we play super clean honorable but, footy but you know what i mean sometimes that's to a detriment like it's it's off we often say that team dundee united that is as everyone's so nice no one ever complains to the ref no one ever does it you know it's and true. then we, we don't you're get right. any decisions as a result you know so uh, you're right you kind of sometimes have to do those dark arts and i think it's it's getting out of hand now uh some of the, you know some of the time wasting yeah. goes on and stuff like that it's, it is know, yeah but um, I agree. I think you... I think that's more um, important in leagues than international play, especially World Cup. You know, mm -hmm. so. But you're right. I agree with you completely, man. What are your thoughts on this new Saudi league? Well, it's maybe not a new league, but the the new uh, investment that they're making in into it and bringing over. I'm all already. These players. I'm. 
I'm already shocked at how many people went. It's so funny to see all these people that people deemed as like, like Jordan Henderson Jordan going Henderson. to Saudi well, from the, Liverpool. That's what like, we were talking about with the brands and their hypocritical marketing strategies. That yeah. is him, right? He 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 campaigned against all this stuff, and then instantly in bed with him. And like, it's not like he's not already a multi 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 millionaire. He doesn't need I the know. money, and he could. And I know that, that there's so many people from Liverpool, so many scousers that are so disappointed. I'm like, listen, they're athletes. They're not fucking members of Mensa. They're not attending, you know, they're not reading dissertations on new sociological, uh, you know, theses and stuff like that. Like they're going to do what they're pushed to do. That's what every athlete does. They're paid and they're celebrated for what they do physically, not what they think. Not for being a great stand-up guy, even though a lot of them try to act like it. I just thought it was funny because on top of him taking on that whole LGBTQ cause, he always was branded as like down homeboy, salt of the earth player. You yeah. know what I mean? Like a real Geordie. He's from the north. Like he knows what it's about to like get stuck in and do hard work and like not take the easy way out. He's probably gonna be like a lifelong one club dude and he's just like Oh, how much? Yeah. Peace, I'm out. <laughs> but yeah. I know it's hard because you like you're getting paid and you make a good living, but then you get offered four times the amount of money, and you're like, "So my great grandkids could be set up." And it's like, you know, I see how for them, it's about chasing the money. You know, yeah. it's weird though, dude. Uh, it's weird. It's weird. Uh, I mean, that Liverpool midfield got gutted, dude, because they got Fabinho, too. Fabinho's yeah, going, too. Yeah. And I'm like, uh, damn. They're, they need a rebuild. They signed McAllister. That was a good signing. Um, Wonderful signing. Yeah, That's the best signing they made. I mean, that whole Brighton team is, like, just ripe for the picking for the rest yep, of the top yep, club. That's definitely. <laughs> the, the vultures are circling for that, I'd say. Yeah, who's going to go for Matoma? <laughs> You know, who's going to go for all these other ass, you know, they've even revived Danny Welbeck. They've even revived like people that they thought were like done, you know, Bell, Billy yeah. Gilmore as well as a Scotland player. Nobody's accusing him of being done because he's quite young, but you know, he kind of, he was at Chelsea, obviously he never really got a look in, went on loan to Norwich. He seemed to be hated there for some reason. He was always great for Scotland when he was on and then yeah. he's gone to Brighton and just been great. So a uh, long way. He's a little firecracker. This, yeah. Long way to continue for the Scotland national team anyway. Uh, well, that's how, you know, somebody will has a good chance of doing well is when Chelsea gets rid of them. Cause we've yeah. gotten rid of so many players that have turned out to just be amazing. <laughs> you yeah. know? Like people Definitely. have no idea. Like Salah, De Bruyne, all these fools were all on Chelsea at one point. We're like, Oh yeah, that's not working out. Don't, don't, like, don't need out. him. Don't need him. Don't need him. Yeah. Don't yeah. need him. You're just like, and people like me are like, oh my God, that's bad business, man. So one final question on football then. Uh, how long until we have the European Super League thing? The, you know, the, you know, we're basically all these big clubs just decide that capitalism wins. Fuck everyone else. Fuck all the other teams. We're going to go and form a league. The cat's out the bag now, isn't it? That's it. It's happening. Yeah. I have no clue. I just hope that the people keep rising up and like protesting it because at the end of the day all these clubs they still rely on the fans but the, like the, those the, ticket the, revenues those shirt sales they're important you know the, pro the problem is i think is so in scotland we call 
the English Premier League a tourist league, right? Yeah, yeah it's true. Uh, yeah. They like Man United can sell out every week just to tourists coming in to buy their ticket to watch yeah. the game. Not they're not fans. Totally. They they don't know any chance. They don't know anything. But they could they could easily sell that stadium out every week uh, to tourists. So like part of them is just going to think, well, we don't need to, you know the people that have been there for generation and generation, and they certainly yeah. don't care. They've they've shown they don't care about them. Uh, you're they, right. treat them, they treat them with utter contempt their their own fans so like yeah i can i can see it happening and yeah that's i don't know how it'll you're be right. I, I, I i i barely even watch the champions league anymore because i think it's just kind of disgusting um you know yeah i i admittedly will watch like a final just for entertainment yeah, value, i usually watch the like, final yeah 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 i'm not like following it i'm yeah. not like like placing any importance on like group stage matches or anything like that you know but I also think if that Super League happens, it'll be cool for alternative leagues like the Scottish Premier League, you know, or the Welsh League. Yeah. Like, hopefully, uh, the we lower get, rid of, get, get rid of Rangers and Celtic, and then, uh, yeah, we can, we can thrive. Yeah. But, you know, like, that's another fascination of mine is rivalries like that, you know, or like with Red Star Belgrade in Eastern Europe or like Celtic mm-hmm. and Rangers and this kind of stuff. Like, um, because so much social issues are tied up in it you know oh, yeah, and so huge. yeah so um it becomes as you know i'm fascinated with humans i'm fascinated with human nature and even the manifestations of it when humans clump together like supporting a club and involving religion in it and all this kind of yeah. bullshit i just sit back and i go like i watch the trash heap burn and i'm like <laughs> wow this is crazy man you know so i hope the super league doesn't happen but uh just like streaming with music and fueling an underground scene, surely I, I know for a fact that a, a similar reaction will happen if they do a Super League. And I don't know where and I don't know how. Maybe uh, the championship just instantly you know, comes up because to me already, that's like way more entertaining football to watch like 90% of the time now. You know, It's championship teams and the whole promotion battle in the championship is like yeah. one of my favorite things in football right now. Yeah. You know? Like, yeah, any football like fan should know like you got to watch a decent amount of the championship right now to get the real football. You know, um, that's like the real shit. So, yeah, yeah. Well, 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 that as you say, I think there will be a reaction, and I think hopefully it'll be a good one. As a as a as a supporter of uh, what we call a diddy club, uh, so a small team uh, that are never going to win much, uh, I'm all for it. I'm all for the revolution. <laughs> Yeah, I can't wait to get to a Dundee match with you, man. Dundee United. Yeah, there's, there's two teams, Dundee and Dundee. You're, oh, is you're, there? Oh, you're Dundee United. Dundee United, right? right I keep right. on telling you that. <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. Is the other one just Dundee FC or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, gotcha. Are they in the same? Uh, are they in the same league? We, we don't talk about that, Steve. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the season that's just been, Dundee got promoted and Dundee United got relegated. So we've we've missed ah. each other. Uh so yeah. We'll see. We'll see. Everything is temporary, man. Everything, Everything is, is temporary. temporary. Yep, yep, yep. Here's hoping. But Steve, I'm gonna I'll, I'll let you go. Thank you so much for your time today. Once again, could you just let everyone know uh where they can where they can get you, where they can get the podcast, if you want people to add you on social media, whatever. Um, yeah. Uh um R X C H O I 
on Twitter and Instagram. I don't use Facebook. Um, my podcast is the Musicians Guild on Evergreen Podcast Network. You can find it anywhere. Just Google it. And then my bands that you so uh, generously complimented and talked about. And yeah, I'm just existing, just a human on earth doing my little part, you know? So thanks again for having me. This has been a super fun chat, to be honest. It's been great fun. Thanks a lot, Steve. See you later. Appreciate you. Peace. Bye.